When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On the theological side, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, you are allowed to reject eternal conscious torment. You are allowed to reject the heresy of penal substitutionary atonement. You're, you're in fact, called to reject the idea that there is retribution in the nature of God. We would say that God is love plus nothing. Uh, every, every um, at, what do you call, attribute of God can only ever be a facet of love. And so we would never say God is love, uh, but also. Uh, we would never say God is holy, just, righteous, or sovereign on its own. Those are only adjectives for love. And so he's not immutable or uh, he's immutable love, you know, he, that which never turns away. So so on the theological side of it, so much stuff that I that I needed to let go of, they they already had in the fourth century. Uh, and that includes even our Old Testament reading. So, you know, they would say you never, ever uh, read about the wrath of God as if he's literally the agent of violent anger. That's ridiculous. They knew this. <laughs> and we forgot it. And we forgot it on purpose because it was handy to have a wrathful God. When we first started out, had no idea what we were in for, or what this was about, I never Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and this week I'm very excited. Very, very excited. First of all, uh, there's a guest, not not just one, but two guests. Yes, I figured out technology uh, enough to the point where I was able to interview two people at the same time, not in the same room as me. So it was a challenge, but I, I think we did it. Uh, but I'm very excited because one of the guests I've had on my uh, to-get list for a while, and that is uh, Bradley Jerzak, who is a theologian, an author, a teacher um, out of the, the great country of Canada, just north of us. And uh, I got a bonus. I got a bonus with Brad. I reached out to Brad and, say, and said, hey, uh, I would love to have you on to chat. And he said, that's fine, but can I bring my friend uh, Paul Young with me? And I said... Uh, absolutely. Yes, that sounds great. And so William Paul Young is on as well. So the two of them actually were working on a project at the time. So recorded this a little while ago, uh, and, and just we're trying, it was trying to find the right time to put it out. And so now is that time. And I cut it up into two smaller episodes cause we talked for, for a while, had a lot to cover. Uh, but they were working jointly together, uh, become friends and, and we're working on this, uh, this book together. 
uh, that we talk about in, in the episode. So very cool. Uh, if you if you don't know the name, uh, Paul Young is the author of The Shack, uh, which is a best-selling uh, book uh, that a lot of you have probably read. And if you haven't read it, you've probably at least heard of it. So uh, great guy. Uh, both of them just had a had a blast talking to the two of them uh, about a whole host of, of topics. Obviously, we were uh, covering uh, as much ground as possible. So hopefully you enjoy it. Uh, again, broke it up into two separate uh, this is part one of part two, and uh, uh, I'll put out the second episode uh, actually next week, and so that uh, you'll have both both pieces uh, shortly. So yeah, uh, haven't done that in a while. So back to back consecutive episodes, but um, hopefully you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed uh, having the conversation with them. So having said that, uh, this week we have a special guest, Morning Ciders, on uh, some some great music. Uh, if you enjoy the, the songs used on the episode or the episodes, I should say, it'll be they'll be featured on this week and next week's episode. Uh, go and check them out. We'll have all of their relevant links in the show notes. Go support them. Um, of course, as always, we update our Spotify playlist. So if you follow our Spotify playlist, the ever-growing playlist, uh, every artist that we've ever used on uh, on an episode of the show, we add a new uh, a song uh, from that from that particular artist. So follow us there. Uh, if you if you would like to support and you can uh, and if you're able to do so, uh, consider joining our Patreon family. So Patreon, uh, the links are in the show notes, and you can also find the links through our website www. Is that too many W's? You, you guys know at this point, it's almost like do you even need to say the www part? I think everybody knows, right? Anyway, the the deconstructionist.com is our website. You can go there. You can listen to every episode that we've ever recorded and stream them directly through the website. You can uh, link to our web store on there. We've got t-shirts, pint glasses, coffee mugs, all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, we've got, did I say blog? I'm losing it now, guys. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's sad. Um, but we do have a blog on there that we occasionally remember to update. Uh, in addition to that, you can find links to our social media, so you can follow us and, and talk to us through social media. Uh, and you can link to our contact information there. So if you want to shoot us an email, you can do so through the website as well. So check it out. Um, what else? I think that's it. So without further ado, let's get to it. Uh, this week, and this is going to be hard to say because I can't put a freaking in the middle of it, I don't think. Sorry, Bob. Uh, but we've got Bradley Jerzak and Paul Young. To feel your fire or how good it Okay, welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm very excited today. This is a first for the podcast. I have two guests on simultaneously, thanks to the, the miracle of technology. I have long overdue. I have Bradley Jerzak on one line, and I've got William Paul Young on the other. Thank you, gentlemen, so much for, for spending some time today with us. Ah, honored to be here, and I, I just go by Paul. So, Oh, okay, great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. You guys uh, co-wrote a book coming out. Uh, or is it out yet? Is coming out? It is out. It's out in uh, hardcover. And also, we've got a brilliant uh, full-cast audiobook. Draw. It's like a audio drama. And so, uh, those are available on Amazon and Audible. And uh, we're, we're really excited about the 
audio version because as Paul and I listened to it, we actually ended up both weeping because the uh, actors were able to bring out even uh, emotion and intensity that we didn't pick up in the writing and reading of it ourselves. So we highly recommend that version and those are available now. Wow. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely share the, uh, the, the links in the show notes there. And uh, it's definitely a very unique project and, and we'll, we'll talk about that certainly. But before we get into it, um, we, we always like the guests to talk a little bit about their background. Uh, you know, so how were you raised? Were you raised in the church? Um, how did you get into the work you're in, involved in today? So uh, why don't we start with, uh, uh, with Paul and then, uh, and then, and then we'll, we'll dig into Brad's background a little. So, born uh, Canadian, northern Alberta, 1955, seems like a long time ago, halfway through the last century. And um, um, my, uh, my mom and dad had just graduated from Bible school. My mom was an RN. My dad uh, had walked out of the logging camps in British Columbia uh, at 18. He'd been there for four years working in the logging camps. And... Um, they wanted to be medical, well, my mom wanted to be a medical missionary. My dad just was wanting to be a pioneer missionary. So at 10 months old, we traveled across the world, and I grew up in the highlands of what was then Netherlands, New Guinea, is now West Papua, and uh, for the most part, that's how, or Papua, but um, the island just above Australia, and the first decade of my life was spent there. Came back to Canada. My dad was an itinerant preacher. Um, basically from a very conservative, fundamentalist, holiness perspective, non-charismatic, non-Pentecostal. Um, and so uh, I, um, I didn't know what else I'd be good at. So I went to Bible school and, um, in the central Canada and ended up uh, graduating in Oregon where I met Kim, who I'm married to now, um, 40 years plus, and we, had, uh, we have six children. We have 12 grandchildren and two on the way. And um, I, growing up in that environment, I, I struggled. I struggled with the inconsistencies, even culturally, between where I grew up and, and the Western culture, and I struggled with... Um, I loved the theology on the one hand and really struggled with the characterization of God on the other hand, especially when it came to how women were treated. That was one of my big first issues because I've got a, I've got some pretty rugged childhood that involved sexual um, abuse, both in the tribal culture and then in Christian boarding school. And, um, and so a lot of my damage came from men and the issue of women became really the logjam issue that, that started to create the tension that um, took me down a different, a different path. A lot of damage in my own life, hidden, of course, because that's what Christians do. And, uh, you know, we're only allowed to talk about it if it's some kind of transformational thing after the fact. And, um, and you know, then it can become a testimony. But... Um, I, I grew up with a lot of hidden stuff, a lot of addiction, stuff Kim had no idea about. 94, she caught me in a three-month affair with one of her best friends. And that, that was the catalyst for a complete deconstruction 
and uh, and not like an art restoration expert uh, as a, as a model of deconstruction. Mine was more like bulldozer and wrecking ball, and um, that started an eleven year process of trying to figure out who I was, who God was, and and why why should we stay alive, really? And um, 11 years later, Kim and I were restored um, relationally. That means, that means that the process of reconciliation had happened, which to me is an absolute miracle. Um, and so she and I today are the best we've ever been. But um, man, that, that journey just about killed me a number of times. But, uh, but it, was, it was rough. And, and yet... Although I'd never want to go back through that, I'm grateful every day for it. And um, so, you know, now, now I sit in a place that's very different. Out of all of that, that's where a lot of the metaphors and the ideas of the shack came from. And then I wrote the story for my kids as a Christmas present. And um, with no thought of becoming a published author. And here we are, down the road from that. And it seems like God has a great sense of humor. Or proof that he can still speak through Balaam's ass. I'm not sure <laughs> which is the dominant thing here, but but um, but I'm I'm thrilled. And in in the course of that journey, got to know Brad, um, and we have a a small creative minority group <laughs> of friends who are really wanting something as far as faith that matters, and. Um, and that's obvious in his work, and I'm, I'm hope, hopeful that it's obvious in mine as well. And I'm, I'm honored to be here. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, what a what a journey, uh, Brad. That's a tough act to follow, but I'll, I'll let you I'll let you talk about your background a little. Yeah, I'm used to that challenge, and I I'm not afraid of it anymore because Paul's just so real and he's lovely. And in fact, um, um, he didn't mention his book. Uh, Lie, uh, the lies we believe about God, which is just really important to those who are coming apart at the seams. Um, so my history is I grew up in a conservative Baptist church with very loving parents. On the one hand, they introduced me to some wonderful things, uh, the person of Jesus, and I do have a love for the scriptures, and I love to pray. And none of that has changed for me. But I was also introduced fairly quickly to uh, uh, the addiction of the church to fear-mongering, to hellfire and brimstone, to Armageddon theology and left-behind BS. And that's quite traumatizing. And it's also, it's also very incongruent with the nature of God as love, as I've come to know and, and meet God. And so... Uh, I grew up in that for 20 years, and then I went off and got an even more conservative Bible college training. But there I met my wife, so that was a gift. And I 
I guess that's a great thing. And a few of those friends are still with me to this day. Um, I ministered in a, in my wife's home church, which was a Mennonite church. And what I loved about that was uh, these were true Anabaptists. These were like blessed are the peacemaker kind of people that taught me that faith needs to also have a public side that is not politicized and yet is very active in the world um, in, as salt and light. And they especially focused on the Sermon on the Mount, on Jesus. And um, so I noticed that that their preaching was a lot more about the Jesus way of living and how to make the truths we believe a, a way of life. And, and they really lived it in profound and sacrificial ways that I appreciate. Uh, then my wife and I, went, we went and planted a church and I led or co-led it for 10 years, and that one was focused on people with disabilities, addicts in recovery, children who couldn't sit in normal churches, and the poor, whether that was the working poor or uh, the homeless. And uh, that was like, it was just like being with angels, honestly, until it wasn't, uh, when tragedy really hit. And so for me, uh, yeah, I, I would say maybe my theology has been a work of recovering ancient artifacts that are more healthy. But on the life side of it, uh, we had so many tragedies, overdoses, suicides, a murder, an abduction, and it went on and on and on um, in 2008. And I I unraveled. So, uh, you know, for me, the experience was like, like being run over by a lawnmower. And the odd thing, the miracle in it, it was inexplicable, is that just about everything was gone except for this this an irrational sense that God is good, and um, and, and uh, which which transcended my actual experience of the problem of pain and evil and all of that, which which shipwrecked so many people. Um, anyway, I went off and to work that out, I, I quit. It's also when I was really struggling with a love addiction and I was uh, just about blew up my marriage. And thankfully my wife is a a profound woman of grace. And, and um, so, so I went to work this out in doing a PhD uh, uh, over the next four years. It was a way to retreat from responsibility and trauma and just get a little healing while actually asking the hardest questions. Uh, anyway, by the time I got out of there, I knew I didn't want to be a pastor anymore. That was for sure. Uh, so now I'm the dean of theology at uh, dean of theology and culture at St. Stephen's University, and I j- ended up joining the um, the Orthodox Church. And it was the ascetic around that and the absolute commitment that God is mercy that really won me. So all that to say is that, you know, I I found myself in the world of academia, but also deeply in the world of 12-step recovery. And I've been a real beneficiary of that myself. And and, um, I understand a a sense of, you know, that daily surrender to the care of a loving God is, and and for me, uh, what they call a higher power, that has actually been the person of Christ for me. And so that's one, that's been a constant since I learned his name on my mother's lap that never went away. Sometimes my ability to trust did. And, and that I suppose was 
what we're calling deconstruction. That's a popular term, but there's also a sense, this more ancient, you know, older term from Jacques Derrida. It's like thinking about how the words we use and even the words we use for God become become venues for power and power plays and a lot of really bad stuff. And I, I think that does need deconstruction. Like, um, And that comes out in Paul's book on, on lies we believe about God. So I'll, uh, maybe I'll stop there at that point. That's sort of my quick history. No, that's that's great. And uh, it, it is interesting, uh, you know, deconstruction, when we when we chose our name almost five years ago now, we, we knew it was kind of a uh, provocative uh, name and and one that had been, you know, as you as you said, kind of um, repurposed over the years from Derrida's original intent to kind of like this catch-all for folks who have gone through so often a traumatic experience with with their faith or with a church, you know, the entity uh, over the years, and uh, just kind of for you know, for all intents and purposes, provided like a name or or a way to label that experience that they were going through of this kind of um, what we would refer to as, as kind of really taking ownership over that, which you believe as opposed to what we've kind of called your inherited faith, you know, the things that you've been told your entire life, but have never really uh, taken ownership over or questioned or, or anything. So it sounds like both of you have something in common in terms of kind of more of a uh, fundamentalist uh, experience growing up. And then uh, both had your different traumas uh, that kind of, kind of almost threw you onto the path of, of deconstruction or spiritual journey, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it sounds like, you know, you've, you, you both kind of have made your way to, I think, uh, Brad, you said you've kind of landed on like an Orthodox tradition, which is interesting because we've seen this a lot. We've seen people kind of reemerge in the, you know, high church or like more traditional denominational side. Uh, yeah. What was it that drew you to that? Yeah, in my case, there's two elements to it. So the, on the theological side, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, you are allowed to reject eternal conscious torment. You are allowed to reject the heresy of penal substitutionary atonement. You're, you're in fact, called to reject the idea that there is retribution in the nature of God. We would say that God is love plus nothing. Uh, every, every um, at, what do you call attribute of God it can only ever be a facet of love. And so we would never say God is love, uh, but also uh, we would never say God is holy, just, righteous, or sovereign on its own. Those are only adjectives for love. And so he's not immutable or uh, he's immutable love, you know, he, that which never turns away. So so on the theological side of it, so much stuff that I that I needed to let go of, they they already had in the fourth century, uh, and that includes even our Old Testament reading. So, you know, they would say you never ever uh, read about the wrath of God as if He's literally the agent of violent anger. That's ridiculous. They knew this, <laughs> and we forgot it, and we forgot it on purpose because it was handy to have a wrathful God. Well, I came to the end of that because it not only did it terrorize me, but the fact is he's not good at it. If it's about him like destroying people, then get on with it. I've got a list for him and he fails to meet that. So, so in terms of the theology, that was, that's what drew me to the Orthodox church, but there was also this therapeutic side around the form. So some people really, don't do well under a form, but for me, the, growing up in a in a church where 
every service was had seemed to be an exercise in, in sensory deprivation, <laughs> like nothing to look at, nothing to listen to, nothing on the walls, nothing, nothing to smell. All of that. Suddenly, I'm I'm in this world where there is a there is a on the one hand a kind of order. I, I my damaged nervous system didn't have to wait to see if God was going to show up. God always showed up. He's in the chalice there. Go get it. I didn't have to worry about how many will come forward. Well, we all come forward, you know, we come and partake, but also the beauty, the color, the smells, the tangible, the tangibility of it. And so, you know, in, in our church, we don't, we only have pews around the outside edge if your legs get sore, but, we stand and move and kids run around during the service and they can go touch things and light their own candles and kiss the icon. Something about there, there's a little boy in me that needed that and, and, and the nervous system that needed that. So, um, so I had 10 years of the theology before I went into this experience that was therapy and, and I'm not recruiting. I don't think it's everyone's game. I think it's probably bad for some people, but for me, that's what I needed. And, and for perspective, for a lot of our people, and when I say our people, I'm talking about, you know, Western American, North American um, holiness evangelical people. And those are my people. They're the ones that are mad at me for writing what I write, but they're my people. So um, I get it. Uh, but they don't, uh, we've so isolated our own thinking about the rightness of our little enclave we don't realize that the Eastern Orthodox makes up as a community more people than the population of the United States. And, um, you know, we, we just think we're the center of the universe. And, um, and we create all our us and thems from that. And just for perspective, there, there is this massive community. And that's just, that's just one of the massive communities out there in the world who absolutely adhere to Jesus being the word of God and, um, and that their faith is irrevocably in their, this relationship with, with the incarnate Jesus who is king of the universe. And, um, and so, you know, for, for me, that was just never an option in terms of my experience. Mine was always inside the church as the Western evangelical fundamentalist would know it. And, um, but again, I also was too damaged to ask for help. So until, until the world blew up, until I blew up the world. And, um, and that's the first time. And I had to pay somebody that I could take the risk of trusting. So, you know, where, where I was coming from, it would have been too big a step. Plus, if, if you just look at the surface of a community like the Eastern Orthodox community, you'll transpose all of your issues of structure and system and institutionality on it because it seems so much like it. And um, just in terms of its presentation from an outward point of view, but it's not. And, um, and again, for those who find their their way there, it it sings to a lot of people who live in a world where nothing has been concrete or artistic, and um, and I think that's partly of what Brad is saying. But in order to say that, I think it helps us just step back a little bit and go like, our way, just because it's what we know, 
doesn't mean it's the right way. It's, and, and frankly, the, the only time you'll find God in a box is because God wants to be where we are. We're, we're the ones that create all these boxes. And if the box is helpful, then participate as long as it's helpful. But, uh, you know, we have found, I think Brad would agree with this, that we, had, we found a lot of our friends who don't know how to discern the distinction between an institutional structured system and the presence of Jesus. Yeah. yeah. And it's too easy just to throw them both out. And Brad and I would both say that we are absolutely committed to the infallible, inerrant word of God, and his name is Jesus. And he was born as a baby, you know, that we celebrate this time of year. And, uh, but we've come a, a long distance from the, the adoration and idolatry of bibliolatry. Of, of, but we love scripture. Both of us love scripture. And uh, it, it's taken some, it's taken a process of deconstruction, to use those terms, even in, even in how we relate to scripture. But, but we both find it a, a place of accessibility to the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Honey, hold me close Hold me with both arms Tell me it's alright Sing me that song I love Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh What's interesting that you both kind of mentioned is the, the idea of, you know, life after death, this, this idea that somehow this loving God delights in the eternal conscious torment of, you know, his children. And that's a, that's a belief in death after life. Just so yeah, clear. Yes. Yes. That's a good, yeah. Um, but that's such a prevalent belief uh, in, within North American, as you said, North American Christianity. Um, and, and what's interesting is that, you know, I was talking to uh, some, some young guys on a, a podcast recently and I said, well, what do you say to people that, that uh, subscribe to that belief that say, well, you're just, you're just creating your own version of Christianity. And my response is, well, they just don't know their history then. Because as you said earlier, that's not, that was not the prevalent belief uh, early on in Christianity. And I think you mentioned the fourth century. So what, what would you say, what would the two of you say to someone who, who pushes back on that and says, well, you're just bucking you know, the traditional uh, quote uh, view? Yeah, well, it's a very modern tradition then, but... um, Brad wrote a whole book about this. Yes, yes, he did. (laughs) Yeah, um, you know what? I would say it this way. In the the first four centuries of the church, you had a range of views, and that was allowed. So much so that when they wrote the Nicene Creed, they determined not to have a theology of hell in it. And that's because some people did believe in a kind of infernalism that's pretty ugly and dark, and... Others believed in a kind of annihilation that's final and at least just. And then um, I wouldn't say the dominant view was that all shall be saved or might be saved, but it was certainly a central uh, element of some major church leaders from Origen to Gregory of Nyssa to uh, Isaac the Syrian to Maximus the Confessor. I mean, these aren't lightweights. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa was a full-on universalist, pretty confident, and he was the final editor of the Nicene Creed. And at the Fifth Ecumenical Council, they called him the flower of orthodoxy and the father of the fathers. 
Well, I don't have to prove that all will be saved to say in the early church, they made space for that. And it was not called a heresy. In fact, he was called the defender of orthodoxy while also completely seeing uh, ideas of divine judgment and the fire of the glory of the love of Jesus Christ as a restorative thing that would bring us to our true selves. Very similar to what we read later in George MacDonald or what you'll hear from Paul Young. You know, that this was, um, and, and so I, I don't know that I have to prove that was the dominant view. It's just one of them and one of the central views. And it's like, to say that the traditional view is eternal conscious torment, it, that's not even true in the Bible. I mean, you've got conflicting imagery that you cannot harmonize there because it's all just trying to say something different. Um, but one of those different things is that, is that judgment is a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap that brings out our true selves and consumes only that which was not love. You know, that's, that's Bible. That's 1 Corinthians 3. That's Malachi 3. So I, it helped me. It helped me to immerse in the Bible because when I'm set talking about this stuff, I need to talk about it to bibliolaters too. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I can play the Bible game. There's also other reasons to not believe that stuff. But um, if all you've got is the Bible, that's that's actually enough to say, no, no, this kind of idea of a monopoly on eternal conscious torment, um, that's a pre- pretty modern invention for, for it to become the monopoly. And that has been unraveling the last 30 years or so. since. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and we need to make a real obvious distinction between the universal inclusion of humanity in the finished work of Jesus, as opposed to the eschatological, you know, where does everybody end up? Which I, I just think that those two things get confused all the time. The early church was pretty categorically uh, committed to the idea that every human being was included in the finished work of Jesus. Wouldn't you say, Brad? Uh, yeah, and especially in Athanasius, right? Who's Who becomes this... He's the steward of the apostolic tradition coming from the apostles themselves, right? Yep. And um, so so the, when somebody talks, starts banding around a word like universalism and wants to put you into a category, we really need to step back and say, what exactly are we talking about here? And is it in the category of what happens after you die? Or is it in the frame of reference of what was accomplished in terms of of Jesus? What did Jesus finish? And when it says that if I be lifted up, I'll drag all men to myself. Is that like all? And is that universal? And did did he only include some but if you think he only included some, you've got some major problems in some major passages in Romans and all oh, well all over the New Testament. So, so two different conversations. And um, and but Brad and I, I think, are are pretty much on the same page. I'm on the same page with him, and that is that when we talk about the fiery fury of God, we are not talking about retribution and and punishment. We are talking about the refiner's fire of love, that God is, as George MacDonald would also say, 
that God is in, in, his, in God's very being opposed to anything in us that is not of love's kind. Why? Because he has a high sense of morality and we're kind of screwing with it? Not at all. Because like any parent, we don't want things that are harmful. Well, even you being twisted up, you don't give your kids a scorpion or a snake when they ask for bread, you know? And um, so this is a God who, whose being is set against anything that harms the ones that God loves, which would be you and me and every, every person ever conceived. Manifest beautifully in our wives. <laughs> ah, no doubt. Brad and right. I, we, we, I, I laugh, I, and I kind of mean it when I say I married the wrath of God, but I mean it in <laughs> this kind of context. You know, she got, she got confused sometimes. She would say she got confused sometimes between, you know, the ideology of vindictiveness and punitive. But, but overall, her wrath was against everything that was not true. And um, it was for me. And I'm telling you, fire is fire. It is not a comfortable process to be melted down. And, and Brad and I both married women who are not wallflowers. And um, they're very powerful people. Thank God, because Kim saved my life. And it Likewise, was, yeah. Yep. Eden too, yeah. Yep. And but that... You know, that tends to be the story of, of humanity. You know, it's the women who show up and save everybody's lives, you know, whether it's Eve or Mary or, or whoever. And, um, and, and there's just something about, you know, you don't have, well, let's call the mothers back to their children, you know. It's like, no, it's the fathers who are turned away and, and off running into some performance orientation. And uh, the women who are much more relational and therefore akin to the very very heart of God, that there was a turning in Adam that was more intense than the turning in Eve. Eve, Eve turned to a relationship. Adam turned to the ground and the works of his hands. And so, I mean, he, Adam, as a, as a representative, not just of humanity, but as a representative of what it means to be male in that sense, is looking for performance as an identity and, and the works of his hands. And now everything, now... You know, since there's only so much earth, I have to compete and, and fight you because, you know, you think that you need some of my territory in order to be, have an identity yourself. And, and, I mean, we have to convince women to send their children to war, to just, you know, to, to act out men's need for domination, territory, property. And, you know, how, how many, how many... Uh, sex trafficking rings are dedicated to women and women are co-opted into them and sometimes in really devious, destructive ways. But generally we're talking about, you know, the, the men needing to dominate and perform and, and uh, compete and, and war. And, um, and so it's been women who have been saying, would you just come home? Would you just be present to your child? Would you just not keep running away to your office? Uh, you know, and, um, and I'm, of course, not making the argument that women are perfect. I'm just saying that they've got less distance to go than we do. 
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.